Well, hello, everybody. I know it's been a couple of weeks since I've jumped on the Millennium Live podcast series. I am super pumped for today's guest. She is someone that I feel like I know because I've seen her on Morning Joe in the morning and I've listened to her on my car rides in to Manhattan every single time that she's been on the air. She's incredibly impressive. She's got an extraordinary background, which we're going to explore greatly, because as a lot of you know, that when I get someone as cool as this on the podcast, I want to know where they're from, what their childhood was like, who their influences were as a kid, and how they had the foresight and the desire to go into public service and do so much good. Just so you know who it is, before I give you her background, Olivia Troy, who you may have seen or may have heard speak, she's been someone who's been um, highly regarded in the news media as someone who, not just based upon her experience, but her opinions and the work that she's doing, which is so important right now. And before I give a lot of away of what, of what she's doing, if you're not so familiar with her, I'm going to let her talk about it. But just to give you a little bit of background on Olivia, she is an American national security official who worked on the national security and homeland security issues at the National Counterterrorism Center the United States Department of Energy Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, and the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis. She went on to work in the office of the Vice President of the United States as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, she also served in the White House Coronavirus Task Force, which some of you may be familiar with or have heard her name from, as Mike Pence's lead staffer on the task force, which was a huge job and undertaking, I'm sure. And then she resigned from the White House in August of 2020. Olivia is originally from El Paso, Texas, fluent in Spanish, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, the National Defense University College of International Affairs, and the Naval Postgraduate School. And she has done and continues to do so much important work today that I think is so important in regards to keeping our democracy intact. And we're going to get through, like we always do, not just what her experiences were as a young child going in through college, coming out of college, and the work that she did, but then also some of the work that she did mostly in public service, but also some of her experience in the private sector as well. So I'm excited. I've been trying to pin Olivia down. Oh, and I almost forgot she's keynoting the event at the end of this month, which I know a lot of you that are listening are going to be at online, our transformational CISO assembly. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to introduce her, let her say hello, get some, we'll get some questions out of the way. But with no further ado, Olivia Troy, welcome to the Millennium Live podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we could finally connect and make this happen. I'm excited oh, to me, be here. Me too. Me too. <laughs> and thanks uh, for the great introduction. Again, as I said to you before, when we just jumped on. I'm just so happy that you were able were to fit me in because I know you're exceptionally busy right now. The first thing I wanted to ask you, Olivia, so as far as I understand about you, you grew up in El Paso, Texas. The only cities I've ever spent in Texas were predominantly in Austin and in Dallas. If I know my geography correctly, El Paso is, a, is near the border right? It's considered what would be a border town. I know that was Beto O'Rourke's old district, right? He represented El Paso. That's how I first knew about it. And I know- I went to high school with his sister. With Beto's sister? Yeah. Very, well, I didn't know that. Small world, small world. Very small world. (laughs) So you were born in Texas, I take it? I was actually born in Nevada. I was born born in in Reno. Okay. Born in Nevada, biggest little city in the world, as they call it. But I moved, my family moved to El Paso when I was very young. I think okay. I got to El Paso by the time I was maybe four years old. So El and, Paso has pretty much been home. And do you, do you know, or did you know then, even as a young child, looking back, what was the reason that you guys left Nevada to go to Texas? You know, it was closer to, my mom is from Mexico. She is from Guanajuato, Mexico. Uh, she actually grew up in Juarez, which is the border town. 
to El Paso. And so it was closer to where my mom's family was. She has a lot of family in Juarez. And uh, my dad was willing to go. He actually, I am the daughter of a lifelong truck driver. So he drove truck until the day he passed, sadly enough. Uh, and he worked for Old El Paso, that company that had the salsa and still has, you know, the tortilla chips and all of that. And mm. he was a, a truck driver for them. Sure. Then from the time you moved in, you were four, I assume all the way up until high school was all done in El Paso. Yes. All there. Lifelong. Okay. And so your dad was a truck driver. Did your mom, did your mom work when you were a child? No, my mom was a stay at home mom. Um, she worked for a little while as a secretary, but I was an only child. She took care of me. That's how I was raised. She got her GED, but she was the female in the family. And back in those days, having grown up in Mexico, she, she didn't go to high school or college. Uh, she made it to junior high in Mexico and then got her GED later on. So yeah, I grew up in a working class family. You obviously were very bright because you did your undergrad at UPenn. I did. And correct. when I interview um, people that, have, that are highly educated or they've achieved so much where, you know, naturally they, you know that they're bright. When you were growing up, was education and studying a big part of your upbringing? How did, how did UPenn be, come into the fold, especially coming from Texas? Yeah, it was a huge, huge leap, I would say, going from El Paso to Philadelphia. Um, yeah. I was, you know, I was raised in an environment where I was encouraged to learn. A lot of it was self-driven. You know, I have uncles that were migrant farm workers on the Mexican side of my family, and they really instilled in me the value of education, the value of hard work. And so I remember being very young and I would, my uncles and my father would buy me, you know, books to read. I grew up in the era of, uh, you know, well, Sesame Street still exists. I, I am the biggest Sesame Street fan you will find. <laughs> I love the Muppets um, because I grew up watching Cookie Monster. That's how actually I learned English. And so I believe in wow. the value of public broadcasting because I grew up in a bilingual household. My dad was traveling all the time. They did not realize until I was about seven years old that I actually didn't really speak English. We realized it when I got to kindergarten and they were like, she's super smart. She kills it in the math competition when she goes up to the board as a kindergartner, you know, you're learning to add and all of this, yeah. but she doesn't speak much. She's very quiet. And it was because they soon realized I didn't really learn. The, I didn't really know the language. And so I, I picked up Spanish before I picked up English. So that's, a, you know, a snapshot into my, my upbringing. I um, was very driven. I was a very curious child and I was very dedicated um, in my school and I liked school. I liked learning new things, but I think it was because I had the language barrier throughout my early years in elementary school that I had to work twice as hard. And I remember saying, after school with my first grade teacher, who I, you know, I have tremendous respect for teachers because, uh, you know, I'm grateful that she would stay after school with me because I was slow in terms of my writing because I just didn't know the language. And, mm. you know, it'd be an hour after school and she'd be like, she refuses to give up. So my parents would come up and pick me up and they're like, she's not coming out. And she's like, well, she's not done with her assignment and she won't give up on it. She's, she's, you know, relentless Good when it came you. to that. But I'm grateful. It was immersive that way. And I would say by, the time I was third or fourth grade, I was fluent in both languages, thankfully. So was, was there ever, would you say that you grew up in a household where there, there was a lot of pressure to get good grades and to study a lot? Or was it more that you were taking the lead and your parents may have just followed kind of your natural curiosity and appreciation for school? I think, you know, interestingly enough, um, I think they just 
they were supportive of it, encouraged it, but there was never like, you have to go and get good grades. You have to get, you know, A's all across the board. It was more of a more nurturing, loving environment. It was me and my mom. I was an only child. My dad was on the road a lot, but I will say that my uncles had a great influence on me. They were always, you know, they were telling their kids, you know, I work really hard on the farms. I want you to have an easier life. And the way you do that is by getting an education and working hard and learning um, if you can, you know, and along the way. And so I think there was never any, like, you have to get a certain set of grades or anything like that. It was more like, if you want to do this, or she wants to go on this trip, or she, she's in the honor society, and she wants all these after school activities, we'll do everything we can to let her do that and, and explore it and um, encourage her. That's great. That's so awesome to hear. So when someone is able to attend a, a university like UPenn, basically have your pick of the litter of schools that you could go to across the United States, at least. Why UPenn out of any school that you could have gone to? I was curious. Hey, look, I had no idea what I was doing when I was applying for college. I had all these college applications. I was a first generation college student. No one in my family had gone to college. I had to navigate the whole process myself. I didn't even understand the financial aid system at all. Uh, We were not going to be able to afford any of the schools that I wanted to go to. Looked at the East Coast schools. I knew that I wanted to branch out from El Paso. I wanted to leave and experience other things in other cities. Uh, I wanted to go to a good school. I had worked really hard getting good grades in high school and being very heavily um, involved in, you know, in band and student government, anything that I could do to make myself stand out as a candidate. I went to a, I guess, what would you say, a workshop or consortium where different schools came into town to El Paso. And I'll never forget this. It was a Marriott hotel. And it was like Duke and Harvard. And I was like, I don't even know if I stand a shot at getting into any of these schools, much less how will we ever afford it? Yeah. Um, but I went and I, um, I met, you know, with all of them, the representatives there for some reason, I, the person that was there for the university of Pennsylvania really took the time to tell me about the campus and talk about what I could do there. Everyone left. And an hour later, I was still interviewing him. I was still <laughs> interviewing him on why, um, why I would go to Philadelphia. Um, and like my parents could not afford to take me on college tours. I am great. I, I find it so heartening when I see families touring campuses and everything. I think that's important. We can do that. I was flying blind. So I decided that I felt Penn was the right fit. They had great student activities, a great student life balance. I wanted, you know, I was very much into the arts. Uh, I was a dancer at the time too. I was a musician and I felt, you know, I could get a good education there and they would also, it would also be well-rounded there. Um, But I watched Philadelphia that movie with Tom Hanks. Oh my God. That's the movie I watched back in the day to see what Philadelphia looked like. That's a tough movie to watch. What looked like. It was very intense. Yeah. Um, very emotional. And it was a tough topic too. And I, but I remember that because I was like, okay, I, that's, uh, that's the city. When, once I got in, I was like, I guess that's where I'm going to be living. And I, we, the first time I saw Philadelphia in Penn was the day my mom landed. She pulled the car over, saw the big bridge and was like, I'm not driving over that thing. Are you? And I was like, well, <laughs> I guess so. We're in this to win this now. There's no turning back. And um, it was a very hard year. Don't get me wrong. My freshman oh, year was very hard adjusting. It was culture shock. It was an East Coast city. El Paso is very different, very different than growing up on the border where everyone, most of the league, you know, it's very bilingual. I grew up crossing the border as a child going to Juarez. Um, going to fairs and all sorts of quinceañeras and family events. I grew up in a very different place, um, but I'm grateful that I did that because I think Philly 
it is a different town and it's a working class town, but it pushed me to grow. And I think that was the beginning of continuing to explore new experiences, finding myself in environments that I was unfamiliar with. That prepared me for later in my career for traveling overseas and other things where maybe it wasn't my comfort zone, but I kept pushing myself. It was very hard to leave my family though, because when you're an only child and you're 3,000 miles away and you can't afford to come home all the time, it is, it is hard. And uh, you know there were times when I wanted to come home and quit. I'm, sure. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, but luckily I made it through it. You know, it's funny. I was in Philly yesterday. My best friend in the world, I went to University of Delaware, which is about 45 minutes from Philly. You know, it it is an East Coast city, but it's a tough city. I've never been on, I've never been on the UPenn campus. I've heard it's very nice and it's, you know, it's a safe part of town, but I've spent a lot of time in Philly. And I say to my best friend who, who lives in that area that there's New York, there's Boston, like there's some of these East Coast cities, Miami even, but like Philly's like a, it stands out to me as a different type of city because it's a it's a tough city. I can't imagine, and, and I've never been to El Paso, but I can't imagine being from a border town in Texas to being dropped off in Philadelphia, just like off you go. Like I, I can't get my head around that. The two cities couldn't be any more different. I it just it was not easy. I remember I'll just make you laugh with this one. I remember, you know, I got to Penn. I was very proud that I got in, um, that I actually made it. It was a big deal for me. Um, because sure. I worked so hard to get there and I, um, I had to work for everything, um, oh that God. I, that I did. And I remember first thing I did was go buy my little pen backpack. I remember this red pen backpack with my little pen emblem on it. And I was like, I'm in the big city for the first time ever. I'm going to get on the subway and I am going to go everywhere. I am going to see this city. <laughs> I'm going to meet people and, and I'll pass. So everybody's so friendly. You talk to everybody. I'm talking to everybody on the streets and clearly uh, people are not used to this, right? They were looking at me. I'm this young freshman, fresh out of high school. And I remember taking the subway and I get off at a certain stop. And I remember getting out and being like, oh, well, this area just doesn't look like the safest area, but I'm going to explore this or whatever. I remember a shop owner coming out from the liquor store and being like, are you lost? Can I help you? And I was like, <laughs> oh no, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm I'm new to Philly and I'm getting to know the county. He was so friendly and welcoming, but he looked at me and he's like, really think that it's best not to explore in the way that you're exploring also with your pen backpack on. This is probably <laughs> not the best area of town. And I was like, noted, learn yes. time for street smarts. Don't walk around as, you know, the pen princess, so to speak. And I say sure, that in quotes. Sure. I guess somewhat privileged child. Uh, I was not privileged in many ways. I never thought that way, but I realized, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I don't mean it that way in a negative way, but it was so such, it was learning. It was a learning experience for me because I realized I was like, okay, you need to like actually learn your street smarts. You're, You're no longer, you know, we're not in Kansas here, Dorothy. Like this is, this is real life. And you're just operating like, oh, well, whatever. Like, you know, El Paso is relatively, relatively safe. I mean, you hear a lot of, conflicting things about El Paso because it's a border town and Juarez and the cartels and everything. But for the most part, it's still a very safe community today. And so, yeah, um, it was a very different environment, but I think it, you know, I, I think it was a great learning experience for me. That's a cool story. Well, he, he would have seen you in your pen backpack and been like, mm, you might be, a t- you might be a target here. That makes a lot of sense. So you go through UPenn and what, what did you study when you were there? Well, that's interesting. I started off, I, uh, I was pre-med. That's partially really? one of the reasons I went there. I was pre-med. I actually, I wanted to be a heart surgeon, believe it or not. That is, oh. that was, I was pretty passionate about that. So, I was so there was no, classes. 
so, there, so at that point in your life, there was no thought about government or the direction that you ended up taking. It was you, you were like set on being going into medicine. Yeah, it was interesting. I was very, um, I was very active in, in high school in student government. I was very politically active. I was running for office. I was running, you know, I was the band flag captain. So I was clearly very involved and very driven in that space. And I, you know, took the trips to Washington um, with the class on Washington basics and found close-up foundation and things like that. But when I got to Penn, I, um, I really wanted to help. I, I, I really wanted to be a doctor and help people get better. And so it's interesting that that's the route I chose at the very beginning, but clearly in the end, I guess that wasn't my true calling, right? I went through my first year, I was in biology classes and what honestly what happened was I lost my grandmother and my father was very, very close to her. She died of heart failure. It was a moment where I realized, would I ever be able to be that person that comes out of the operating room as a heart surgeon or whatever? That was my dream. And tell someone that I've just lost their family and, and mm. would I remember and would I ever be able to remove myself and recover from that moment? And at that point, I, I don't know. I just didn't feel that I, that I could. And so I was getting more politically involved at Penn. Um, I was taking political science classes and then I just, I actually switched majors. So I was a political science and history major. And I um, also, I have a minor. Well, I was one class short of a major, so I can't really call it a major, but I was a theater <laughs> person as well. Oh, okay. So, cool. Yes. So, um, so that's what, you know, and I guess that sort of changed the direction of my career. And I'm like many, I guess I, I have ended up in the more political space. It's still theater sometimes. That's what I tell people in joke. So a lot I'm, of actors. I'm utilizing yeah. both degrees now. So. Yeah, no, I'm sure it came in handy. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know this for sure, based upon who you worked for in Washington, because I know you, you started out working in the State Department, or I'm sorry, in the Defense Department. And when I was reading through your bio, you were working for Donald Rumsfeld, and then you ended up working toward the back end of your time in Washington so far for Mike Pence. So I would assume that your political ideology leaned more conservative. I know we have people in America that are classified as independents. I have yet to meet someone that's truly a down the middle independent, you know, especially in this environment, people, you know, at least lean a certain, lean a certain way. And with myself, I tried to think about in my childhood and my experiences, why if I was to tilt one way or the other, I would tilt a little bit to the left. So I'm curious where your political intention to align with you know, you were to align with the conservative party came from, did it have anything to do with your upbringing? And was there someone that you, you know, I don't know that you um, interned for that, you know, that you respected or was it, did, did it evolve in college? Where did like a political ideology come into play for you? That's a great question. I actually, I have thought about that actually even more recently along the way, as I kind of, you know, I'm more introspective now on how on how we got here, especially in terms of where the party is, but I do, sure. I do lean conservative. You know, I started actually very early on uh, my first job. Well, I interned at the Republican National Committee, so I did start in Republican politics. What, the beginning. Around what year was that? Ninety-eight and ninety-nine. Okay. Very early on, um, that's when I was interning, and then I graduated from Penn, and my first job out of college was at the Republican National Committee. I started there, I was in the co-chair's office and I worked on political coalitions and outreach to minority communities and to communities of faith. And, you know, I think I was raised in a fairly conservative household. My mom is a very devout Catholic. Um, I was raised as, you know, in Catholic upbringing. My father was more agnostic, but um, he was a working class 
individual, but had grown up with very conservative, in a very conservative household. Uh, look, I grew up in a household where very early on, I was only allowed to listen to classic country, you know, Johnny Cash and Waylon and all of those, those were the classics. I can, I can still sing probably every song out there that a classic country artist has put out <laughs> because that is what, what we listened to. And um, my father didn't tolerate rock and roll in the household. It was, it was, a, it was interesting. Although if you really think about it, the outlaws of country aren't necessarily any more, you know, <laughs> less, less, I guess, I guess more out there than rock and roll, but that is the upbringing that I had. Along the way, you know, I grew up going to church every Sunday. I was very involved in catechism, Catholic church teachings. I think that that's where more of the conservative influence came from. I'm, I'm the kid that like when they say rated R in the movie, I was never going to be allowed to watch that movie. <laughs> I, I had to wait to watch Pretty Woman when I got to college. That was my one thing that I did. I got my roommate <laughs> that I had just met and I said, can I please watch the movie Pretty Woman? <laughs> <laughs> know why but it was a thing um and sure. so uh you know and i think they were just very protective of me as a child and i don't know if that's what made like what created more of the conservative environment and why i tend to lead that way um but by the time i got to college i mean i considered myself a republican i would watch you know president reagan back in the day well in college i mean anybody who knew me would say yeah she's a republican she's part of the college republicans and so that was sort of my political leaning. Um, I then, you know, went to the RNC. I worked there. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. So I took some time off um, to really focus working in the law firm. And then um, I came back, but then, uh, but then 9-11 happened. And yeah. like many people, I think um, around my age range and in my career field, I took a step back and said, what's more important to me right now is that do I want to remain in the political sphere or do I want to work on more policy. And, and I really, for me, it was more of a calling of what can I do to help in this field so that in order to prevent something like this from ever happening again. But I was a Bush appointee right after 9-11. I was at the RNC and I actually took my first job in the Pentagon as a Schedule C is what they call us very early on as a staffer. So I, you're correct to say, yes, I, I was you know working for Republican people. Along the way though, I really just, my passion was in intelligence and national security. I wanted to remain in that lane. And you know, when I got to the Pentagon, I, I'm very grateful that early on in my career, I was surrounded by wonderful military leaders and public servants who were working in a nonpartisan way. And so I think that that is, something that I adapted very early on. And it, I was very attracted to that aspect where you serve the greater good, regardless of the party in sure. the White House that's in charge. And so I then joined the career service and I became a career national security um, person. I joined the, I became a career intel officer. And you spent, you spent time in both Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Yes, I did. Uh, I spent time in 2003, very early on. Um, back then, I was in Baghdad. I was actually Ambassador Bremer's aide, oh, wow. uh, Paul Bremer. Yeah, it was a very, very challenging, very big learning experience for me, especially because I was still very young. I was a junior officer, still finding my way in the world. It was a very hard time for me, I'll say that, because um, I made a very hard decision. It was a very, very hard personal decision because my father had just passed away Oh, man. Um, right before. And it was very hard to tell my mom, like, I've made this decision. I'm a civilian, but I'm going to go ahead and deploy. I really just want to serve. Um, because I had been around the military salon, but I was like, I feel like I just want to serve my country. And if I can do it in this way, 
I'm not military, but I want to go. And it was, it was hard. It was really hard for both of us. Um, but I'm glad that I, that I did. It was a big learning experience. Um, and then I, later on, I, I didn't spend as long in Afghanistan, but I definitely traveled there for longer periods of time. And I got to, uh, you know, I did some of my, my training there, um, with the department of defense, um, and the military and the special ops community. I did some of my leadership training there too. 9-11 happened. I was a junior in high school. I was living in South Florida. I went to high school in a my, traditional Miami-Dade public county high school, 4,000 kids, all different backgrounds, which was a really great experience for me because I originally had lived in New Jersey where, not that it's not diverse, but it's not diverse as diverse as Miami. And it was a really eye-opening experience. And I remember being a junior in high school, 9-11 had hit and I was actually in TV production class. So part of the class was you watch TV and it was on all the TVs. And I didn't really pay much attention in high school and college to the politics of the day and what was going on. But I think the consensus with my generation was, is that we're going to vote Obama in 08, right? I didn't even vote in 2008. That's how uninterested I was in that. I was, what, 22 years old, maybe. I didn't vote. And compared to now, I would never miss voting. But the consensus in my groups of friends and my age demographic, I remember around the Obama-McCain election was, well, look what this administration just messed up in Iraq. And look what they did and look like WMD or WMDs and they got it all wrong. And I'm just curious to ask someone like you that's that's in it and has been in it. Was the Iraq, you know, invasion and, and the whole sort of time that consumed the Bush administration, was it as black and white as that? Do, do you feel looking back that the intentions were noble and to try to do good? But like, I guess what I'm asking is, is that how much is it in general where people make things in government seem like outsiders make it seem like things are so easy, but I can imagine that inside they're not. And now looking back, not trying to be biased in my viewpoints, it's like, you know, how much of what happened in Iraq was as simple as, you know, it was just a, would you, would you call it a mistake? Was, was there, was it mostly a mistake to do all that and to do everything that the United States did at that time? I think it is very hard when you're in the actual situation and on the ground. I can tell you that the people that I met were very committed to doing their roles there. And they they felt like they were going to stand with and for the Iraqi people. And again, Saddam Hussein at the time, there was a lot of politics. It was right after 9-11. It was a very hard charging time. And so I think there was a lot of emotion around it. And looking back on it, I mean, you know, on the WMD thing, like, you know, I can't speak for the very senior levels of what was going on behind closed doors, but I think that there, I mean, there was a strong belief of it, regardless right or wrong. And I think that it was carried out in a way, like looking back on it, do we have a great history of nation building when we want to promote democracy? Mm. Not necessarily. Mm. Um, You know, I was so young back then, this is 20 years ago, looking back on it now and looking at how we do things, was it the best move? Maybe not. Um, you know, so I guess I'm maybe more measured in that. I'm not a staunch like anti-Iraq person, war person, or pro. I was so young at the time that my role mm. was very different. But looking back at it, I, I have been very, I've done int- introspection and thinking about that and seeing what really happened there. But I will say that it's very hard to really understand the scenario of what's really going on internally. And I've seen a lot of very challenging situations across all many administrations, right? Both Republican and Democrat. Sure where externally people are, you know, either passing judgment on something, but the reality is that the problem is so much more complicated and getting there. And I saw, you know, and I think I'm grateful for those that do work in public service that continue 
um, that they're committed and they work very closely with the political appointees that are at these departments to figure some very complex problems out is what I'll say. I've worked on some very challenging issues. I mean, I have worked on uh, detention operations at Guantanamo. I have wow. worked in that space. I have seen administrations, both Republican and Democrat, struggle with that problem and how you handle that. Look, not proud of Guantanamo Bay. I mean, it's a very hard thing. It's a very politically charging thing, mm. I would say, and how people view it. And I, you know, like I tremendous respect for the people that really tried to navigate the issue. I would say that, you know, I worked with the Obama administration on this and they struggled and had a tough time with it because once you're in it, you realize that it is a very complicated um, endeavor uh, to kind of figure out how you resolve certain things. For me, two things that I tried to, and I really started to think about this when Trump came into office. One is at the end of the day, I try to think about politicians and people that are in high levels of government or in all levels of government. Like you can't expect people to get every decision right. I just care as a citizen that the people that are in power that are making decisions are, are leading from a place of goodness. And they, at the time, think they're making the right decision to benefit whoever, the country or a sect of the country or the world or whatever. And it wasn't until Trump came into office where I was just like, what is the intention here? You like, I look back at the George Bush presidency and I don't know, he could have been a master, uh, what is it, evil type of guy. But the impression I got is that regardless of what you think of his presidency or Obama's presidency or presidencies before them, the sense I get from watching video and paying attention as I got older was that these seem like people that are they're trying to do the right thing. And when COVID hit, and I know you were involved in that, it was like, I never could tell when Trump would take the podium in my gut, and I'm just one person, what was there a noble intention into what he was doing? And that was just a weird kind of queasy feeling, especially in a time of such hysteria. And the other thing is, is that I always feel, even today, for people like you and people that are in public service, that a lot of their job is doing their job, and then a lot of their job is defending what they're doing, which takes up a lot of time. And I'm just like, there's a necessary component to you know keep the country informed, but how tiring it must be for people, regardless if you agree with them or not, that if you're under the impression that they're, they're there to do the right thing and they're trying to do the best they can with the information they have at the time, like watching how much time they have to defend their choices to everybody, I can imagine that's got to be a draining exercise for these people. It is. It's, it's, it can be exhausting. I've really had the honor and privilege of meeting. Uh, I met President Bush when I was working in his administration and I met President Obama when I was working at the National Counterterrorism Center and I've been, been in some meetings with both of them. And I would say that they're, they are, at the end of the day, patriotic, good human beings trying to do the right thing. I never saw anything that I can speak to that gave any other, any other indication otherwise. Um, yeah, and I think I people so. were very dedicated um, in their roles and their service. And I think I, I saw certain types of people like that in the Trump administration um, when they came in, but it was a very different thing. And I'll, and I'll just say that I have worked with political appointees across many departments for different administrations. The demeanor of many of the political appointees under the Trump administration was very different. Mm. And I had not seen that kind of a behavior in my roles previously. And I had served in government at very senior levels for a very long time. And it was hard. It was hard to see that somewhere along the way, it was even harder 
being in public service because at some point, you know, unfortunately we're living in a world of disinformation and challenges mm -hmm. like that, where we somehow became the, the enemy in many cases, right? We, you know, there was that deep state labeling, which was to me, sure. I actually found it really offensive because we were working really long days to implement executive orders back at DHS and it was hurtful. It was hard to hear that my junior officers and intelligence officers and law enforcement people were being called the deep state for really no, no reason. So when you have that, it's, it is, it's demoralizing. I will say the morale in the intelligence community, it was very hard because traditionally we have served in a nonpartisan manner, very committed to our roles to protect Americans. So it's really hard when that is sort of the environment that you're working in on a daily basis. And yet you're still you trying to get up every morning and support the mission. I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I want to be cognizant of your time in terms of the roles that you took in between. And we'll shed some light on that through some content we'll produce on your on your background. Where were you or what role were you in during the um, the famous Helsinki press conference when the whole Trump not siding with U.S. intelligence thing happened. Do you remember where you were then and how that affected you? Gosh, it all blurs together. What year was that? Do you know? <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you that because it does blur together. I want to say it was either 2017 or 2018. I don't remember being in the White House when it happened, and I would have remembered that moment, So, which means that I was at DHS. I mean, I remember when it happened because it was, it hurt. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it hurt to hear that. But I was trying to remember where year where I would have been sitting. Um, so I was back at DHS. Yeah, I just remember that moment. And I remember that being one of the first moments I could remember in the Trump administration where some Republicans were like, whoa, like you saw a little bit of a glimmer of hope. I never could understand. And I say this because there's there's Republicans in Washington right now that I respect a lot. Mitt Romney on the right side of my office. I literally ran into Ben Sass on the street and I stopped him and I said, you know, hello, you know, I know who you are. He was by himself walking and we were chit-chatting, and I think he's a, an impressive guy. And I think especially on a foreign policy perspective that there's some really solid Republicans that the country should be listening to when it comes to foreign policy. Just from an integrity perspective, a lot of them have shown some, some great integrity in a, very, in a very challenging environment. To me, what I just can't get over is there were so many obvious things over the four years of the Trump administration that were obviously backwards, that if someone else was in office, a Democrat or another Republican, Republicans would have pounced all over them, right? To me, it had to be more of just the fact that some of these people were afraid that they were going to be mean tweeted, I guess. I don't know where they were going to get primary. Is it, is it as simple as that these people were just afraid to lose their jobs because they knew if they lost the base, they wouldn't have their job? It was, is it, or do you think there's more to it of why they were so afraid just to, like you, stand up for what you believed in? I think it was very clear once Donald Trump got elected that he had a movement behind him and it was unwavering. And so you really saw, I think, you know, that shift in the Republican Party and in the base had been coming for some time, but it was now front and center. And the truth is, look, when Donald Trump comes after you on Twitter, it is ugly and your life can change in a moment, right? Sure. He can really, and you, the death threats start coming and all of that, or people suddenly get very angry. And the next thing you know, you're like, public enemy number one. And he has done that along the way. And so I think people, you know, it, it sounds insane that people would be afraid of that tweet or that they would be afraid of public criticism. But I think, again, it was probably about self, like preservation of power and being worried about what that would mean going forward in terms of their voting base, unfortunately. And I say it's unfortunate because I think that there are still 
good Republicans there that Absolutely. I mean would prefer not to be in this situation. But on the other hand, I mean, I I just I guess I had always hoped that like at some point you've got to stand up to the bully. And I think mm. you're stronger when you stand up to the bully together. You know, I guess I've been disheartened about the fact that I think there could have been an opportunity to push back. And if you have a lot of more collectively Republican voices coming forward, you might be able to make a difference and change the conversation and change the direction of the party. But instead, I unfortunately, you know, I have tremendous respect for Liz Cheney and her courage oh, and absolutely. people like Adam Kinzinger. And she has integrity. You may not agree with all her politics. Like my politics have evolved. I, I'm very moderate. I would say yeah. now I'm in the center. I, I'm sure. center right on some issues, center left on many. I'm, you know, I wish that there were more Liz Cheney's and I met Romney's and um, people like Peter Meyer. I have tremendous respect for him. I'm sad that Fred Upton is leaving, that he won't be running for re-election. Um, that to me, you know, I think it's unfortunate because I think that we need good people in Congress right now. We're, we're losing them, especially on the Republican side. You know, it's hard for me to watch my party, so to speak, yeah. be overtaken by people that are not interested in bipartisanship or governing and making a really big difference policy-wise. It's Right now, unfortunately, that's not where the focus is. It's just bad for the country. I was going to say, you saw, though, on January 6th, I remember, and I can only, I mean, this is such a microcosm, but in my group chats with my friends that are predominantly Republicans, you could feel how upset they were with January 6th and how they were like, excuse my language, shit, this is nuts. I remember that the, the night of January 6th, people like Lindsey Graham and other politicians, Mitch McConnell, I mean, they were like on the right side of history there in a good way. They were on the right side and they were saying all the right things. And even Mitch McConnell to this day is still Ted Cruz. Even I think he had made some comments that made me think, all right, finally, the 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 the, the potion has wore off. But now fast forward. You, you and me and both. <laughs> I was just like, OK, cool. We can move on. And regardless of who's the next president in 2024, we can move on. This was this was a, a, a step too far. But you know, I don't know how many months are we into the Biden administration, a year and a half. It's like they're almost pretending it didn't happen. And if it did, it wasn't what it was. Like that moment that we had was so short lived. And I was just stunned by that, that still that we can't all be on the same team when it comes to that day. And I'm just still, even though I mean, I'm not so surprised, I'm just sad by that. Well, and I think as long as, you know, there hasn't really been accountability at the leadership level for what happened there. And so I yeah. think, unfortunately, the lesson that's been learned probably by many of these political entities is that they got away with it. It was horrible. I think they don't discount the fact that it was a horrifying day for our country and, you know, scary moment for our democracy, but they were able to double down on false narratives. And unfortunately, a lot of voters have bought in and they feel like that has worked. It's worked. And so their, I think their lesson, their takeaway has been, well, if it works, then we double down on it and we continue and that's our path to victory. And it's upsetting to see because it comes with great cost to our country and our democracy and our society. I would say in our communities as well. I mean, it, there is great division that we're seeing going on. And, you know, it's really scary to see people in leadership actively spreading disinformation that is quite it's false. They're just they're lies. And it's hard because they have a platform and they can really make a difference. And words matter. I, I, a question for you that I, I've, I've never really asked someone of your level of experience, but I, I think about it. I try to put myself in the mind of a guy like, just for example, a Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, obviously very bright guys. 
And Josh Hawley looks the part, you know, he's got like that Gavin Newsom type politician look. And they obviously know what's going on, right? They know it. But I try to say to myself, well, how do they justify when they put their head on the pillow? How do they justify the stuff that they say and they do? And they're trying to basically make you think didn't happen, like with, like with January 6th, for example. And the only thing I could come up with is that they believe in their heart that the ends justify that the means, that in their mind, I don't know this to be true because I've never, I don't know either of them, obviously. But the only way I could, I could make a thought in my head that made sense if I were them was Democrats are so bad that even if we knowingly, consciously don't tell the truth, we're doing what's best for the country. That's what I always would think to myself. Because other than that, I don't understand why they say the things they say. I think that's probably a fair assessment. I think <laughs> because there's no other rational explanation. These are smart people. And the thing is, they know exactly what they're doing. Sure. I've, you know, I've been in a lot of conversations and have witnessed a lot of conversations where people are well aware of the consequences. They're well aware of the fact that it's not based in, in facts and it's not based in governing, but governing, right, or policy. But I think that's probably right. They feel like the end, you know, justify the means of how they get there. And I just, I wonder at what point, like, <laughs> At what point do then do they get back to governing if this is the cycle that we're in, right? And you know, I don't like I don't like narratives like owning the libs. I I, yeah. I I don't like that at all. I think you know there are great principled Democrats out there that are serving their country, and I, you know, I want I want a John McCain. I want someone who is going to have the courage to stand up just like Mitt Romney did. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, well, he was just doing his job and we shouldn't be applauding these people that stood up for um, the Justice Jackson vote. Well, I'm like, no, in today's world, you know, <laughs> you get ostracized for voting Absolutely. for what you think is right for someone that you believe is actually qualified for the role, your own party will ostracize and it comes with great risk, right? I mean, it's unfortunate that that is where we are today mm. um, in the political spectrum. And I think, you know, again, we are in a two-party system right now, and we're better off when we have two actual functioning parties, which is mm. why I, you know, I continue to support the moderate Republicans. I, I don't want extremists to take over the party. I think it's bad for all of us if I that agree. happens. And I'm happy to support, you know, good Democrats. That's where, where I am. I think we've, we've, it's a coalition of the willing is what I call it right now, because it matters so much. I totally agree. And you know, and I don't think the Democrats are perfect. And I think that when I look back at 2012, when if you were voting for Mitt Romney or the idea of a Mitt Romney presidency, it was like if you were a Democratic voter, it was like the end of the world. And I think Democrats hopefully look back at that time period and realize, well, we saw how bad it could be. And a Mitt Romney presidency would have been just fine. You may not have agreed with the judges he picked, or you may not have agreed with some things that he did, you know, over the course of his time in office. But to me, the litmus test is good, honest, integrity stood up at a time when it wasn't easy to do so. And I think that, you know, he was the only one in the first Trump impeachment that voted for it, which was really hard to do, really hard to do, because I remember they were throwing all sorts of insults. So you, you were just jealous because you didn't win and Trump did. And, you know, if you were looking at it from a neutral position, it was just like, this is obviously a man of high integrity. You may not agree with everything they do. And I just wish as someone who, who pays attention to this stuff, policy is obviously hugely important, but like as a minimum, as a baseline foundation, I, when I think about 2024, regardless of whoever's reelected or whoever's the president, 
it just matters that we know that their intentions are in the right place. Um, I want to, before I let you go, I'm curious to see what you think about 2022. I'm a little bit anxious about it. From what I know, the trend line, and this may not, I don't know how long this trend goes back, but you know, when there's a new administration comes in, the other party takes the house back and that wouldn't be so surprising. Obviously, I know Democrats aren't trying to lose loads of seats, but it seems like with Biden's approval rating and even some of the crazy stuff, some of the, the part of the Democratic Party are pitching these days is not helping, I would say. And that's a whole other conversation, a whole other debate. Do you think there's any chance the Democrats were to keep the Senate? Or do you think that looking at this impartially, that it's going to be a tough road to climb to keep both both chambers? I think it's going to be very hard, to be honest. I think um, it is an uphill challenge for that to happen. But I think it all depends on whether the Democrats really start to to rally together and row in the same direction yeah. to figure out that this is going to take a greater coalition. And so I think it all depends on their reach to moderate voters and really getting the message out. I think that's going to be critical. There are a lot of people who are, yeah, they're not happy with the way things are going right now. But look, I think also when it comes to the House, especially in some of these more I would say polarizing figures on the Republican side that are more of the extremists. I mean, we should be looking at those primaries right now. That's where the difference is going to matter because in some of these districts, they're red. They're going red. Yeah. It'll be a Republican that's elected. And so find the principal candidate and back that person. And that's how you sort of start to push back on the candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene, sure. the candidates like that are just, they're bad for everybody, right? Except for the small base or the loudest voices or whoever is funding these people. But they, you know, the majority of Americans, I would like to think are not okay with that kind of a behavior. And I don't think it's it's good for anyone. And it doesn't definitely, they're not really doing much for their district. So um, I think that is where the next couple of months will matter if you wanna make a dent in that is really pay attention to that aspect and decide you know, your vote, because it's going to matter. 100%. Well, I could talk to you for hours. And your schedule, I know is nuts, because we were trying to fit this in. I appreciate the conversation so much. I enjoyed this thoroughly. This was a real treat for me. For those of you, like I mentioned at the front end of the podcast, Olivia is going to be keynoting our event later in the month. The keynote's on April 26th. She's going to be keynoting. She's going to do a great presentation for all of you and for all the sponsors and everybody that's going to be there. So definitely look out for that. Insight to Olivia and to her life and all the great stuff that she's done and she continues to do to defend democracy and stand up for what is right. She's such an impressive person, Olivia. I can't thank you enough for chatting with me. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And one day, if your schedule ever isn't so crazy, which I don't know if that's ever going to be, I'll try to book another hour with you so we can catch up on the topics of the day. <laughs> that's great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.